0: This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta
0: Pissarro. There's billions of dollars around the globe going into wellness benefits, but what we think the challenge is, is that almost all of the focus is addressing symptoms. So focus on really remediating symptoms rather than getting at the root cause of the employee burnout.
1: That's Erica Coe. She's a McKinsey partner and a leader of the McKinsey Health Institute. She joins us to talk about why burnout continues despite genuine efforts to alleviate it. After, senior partner Tiffany Burns describes one of her rookie moments when she talked a client down from sending an email in a
0: state of frustration.
1: Erica, welcome back. Thank you. Given that burnout has almost become a buzzword at this point, I'd like to start by making sure we're all actually on the same page about what we mean when we use that term. What does it feel like actually to be burned out? What are the symptoms of burnout versus feeling sort of lackluster or just limping toward vacation as the case may be?
0: You're exactly right that it certainly has become a buzzword used everywhere. So it's helpful to ground ourselves. One of the definitions that we often turn to is World Health Organization. So according to the World Health Organization, burnout is an occupational workplace phenomenon It's driven by a chronic imbalance between your job demands. So for example, how heavy your workload pressure is and your job resources. That might be how autonomous or supported you feel at work. So it's that disconnect and imbalance between demands and resources. One of the things that's important to note is it is often correlated with anxiety and depression, a potential predictor of broader mental health challenges, which is why it's so important to really get a grasp on some of the burnout challenges that many employees are facing to ensure that employers can intervene now. To your question of what, what characterizes burnout is often marked by extreme tiredness, difficulty, in, concentration, cognitive and emotional processes. So I, I think any of those symptoms or tendencies is just important to fully understand.
1: And in the before times, pre-pandemic, folks used to talk a lot about being busy. It was like a badge of honor to be busy. How did we go from being busy to
0: being burned out? Did the pandemic play a role in that in your view? I think it certainly did. Uh, If anything, of all of the challenges that have come about because of the pandemic, one of the silver linings is just increased awareness and open dialogue around mental health and around the importance of positive mental health and well-being and really investing in that.
1: Why did you make employee burnout the focus of an MHI
0: report In terms of why brain health and specifically why employee mental health and well-being, we were already facing a global mental health crisis before the pandemic. Now, after living through two and a half years of COVID, the crisis has only grown. And with such an urgent need around a very core part of health, we knew that the only way we could really improve health holistically is by first addressing mental health. Mental health impacts physical health. It impacts social health. It impacts spiritual health. You can't have good overall health without good mental health. And so we we really felt that to ever have a shot working with others to add years to life and life to years, we had to focus initially on the urgent priority of mental health. And so then the question of, well, why employers? Every day, employers are impacting the health and the mental health of their employees and workforces. So if we could find a way through convening, collaborating research innovation to start to change behavior of many of these employers, we felt that it could be one way to really have impact at scale. We also feel that we are very much at a tipping point for change. So this is a unique moment in time where if we can find what research, what innovations can be introduced, we might be able to shift things in a new direction.
1: Super helpful. Let me ask you a question before we turn to what companies are doing now to help about this phenomenon as kind of a global, um, a global phenomenon. We think of Americans as a culture that's we're particularly consumed with work versus, say, folks in some European countries that maybe have, for example, more stringent, rules about emailing outside traditional work hours. How
0: global is this phenomenon of burnout? Interestingly, very global. We conducted a survey across 15 countries, every continent around the world, and found consistently high burnout rates. And I think one of the differences is around the cultural context, how often things are talked about. So the the stigma or discrimination in a workplace that may exist, the comfort level of employees of sharing certain things, the level of support they might have felt from their employer. A fascinating step in the research was for all of the surveys we deployed across the 15 countries, we we did a significant number of translations. So we've translated them into local languages. And even the step of translating, often it's a, well, there may not be a word that actually characterizes mental health or mental health in the workplace. And you start to see stigma in in many ways, even just in designing the survey instrument, but also in the findings. It is important. So if we think that the same level of burnout and mental health challenge exists, understanding the stigma and the broader cultural context is critical in terms of highlighting what interventions will work. And there's very different approaches that are going to need to be taken to support employees and then their family members and broader communities, which these negative impacts trickle down to depending on the culture and environment that an employee is in. And for many large global employers, they may have a footprint across a number of regions around the world. It's also important to understand just to be able to effectively support their Um, workforce more broadly.
1: So burnout is bad. It's potentially at a tipping point, as you said. It's global and employers are keenly aware of it, particularly in such a tight talent market where we have seen record quit rates and churn, as we know from our Great Attrition, Great Attraction research. What are companies doing to help their employees now?
0: So if if we look at investment rates of what employers are, are pouring into interventions. Often it is on the wellness side um, and, and often it isn't moving the needle. Burnout rates are continuing to increase despite many organizations committing to this, making it a C-suite agenda priority and trying to find ways to support employees. And so I think that that really stood out to us of you know what, what's going on and what's behind the disconnect there just to emphasize the support in a recent survey, four out of five HR leaders have said that they consider employee mental health and well-being as a top priority. And there's billions of dollars around the globe going into wellness benefits. But what we think the challenge is, is that almost all of the focus is addressing symptoms. So focus on really remediating symptoms rather than getting at the root cause of the employee burnout. So trying to help somebody start to feel more relaxed, more supported, um, addressing the symptoms, but to really step back and reflect on what are the structural challenges of an environment that may be causing the burnout in the first place. And if the root causes aren't fixed, then you're going to continue to put your employees in environments that are going to increase burnout.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Sometimes I'm afraid in my own life that these wellness initiatives, although I'm super grateful for them, risk creating another work stream. What's the risk of wellness becoming another
0: work stream for employees? I think the way you framed it is exactly right. It is certainly critical, but in and of itself, it's not sufficient. So it's very important that individuals learn different resilience skills, different coping strategies, that there is that individual approach and support. But where we often get burnout wrong is assuming that it is purely an individual experience, something for a person to fix and get better on their own. And we'll equip that person with all the tools they need to fix it. But we often miss the impact that is coming from how our teams, how our leaders, how the broader organizations really are trickling down and influencing how people are experiencing their lives at work. And I think starting to pay attention to the systemic issues and really getting into some of the root causes will be what's needed to, to really unlock change here.
1: So let's talk about some of those root causes. What are some of the...
0: Um, drivers behind these pervasive burnout challenges? So one of the things that we asked in our survey across these 15 countries to about 15,000 employees was to try to get under what some of the strongest predictors are of burnout symptoms and other negative outcomes. And by far, one of the drivers by a large margin was what we refer to as toxic workplace behavior. Toxic behaviors being things that leave you or leave an employee feeling unvalued, unsafe, something that might feel like a demeaning treatment, a non-inclusive behavior, really extreme competition, abusive management, unethical behaviors, all of those, what ends up becoming in a sense, almost a cultural norm that can really feed into toxic behavior. Uh, One in four employees reporting high rates of toxic behavior at work is what came out of our survey, which I think is, is really high. And to try to get at, well, is this actually causing burnout at a higher rate? Is it predictive in any way? Looking at the subset of those employees who reported experiencing these high levels of toxic behavior, they were eight times more likely to experience burnout symptoms, significantly higher. And then if we look at the actions, they were also Six times more likely to report that they intended to leave their employer in the next couple of months. One interesting finding that I think came from other recent research that MIT Sloan put out is that often the culture of an organization is one of the biggest predictors of the rate of resignation, 10 times more predictive than compensation. So I think that, it, that there's really something here just in terms of the broader environment and an interesting angle and findings for employers to consider, are they even aware of kind of baseline, current state? Where do you stand as an employer across some of these aspects?
1: How can employers take on toxic behavior in the workplace?
0: In trying to think about some strategies for leaders to reflect on and what could actually be taken on, one way that we framed it is thinking about what behaviors do you tolerate? In your own organization, and what is acceptable, even if it's not rewarded, what behaviors are actually tolerated? I think that one way that employers can view toxic behavior and approach it is treat it as a lack of competence. So, if you're looking at a skill set and skills that have to be demonstrated at any given level, think about recruiting to performance management to others, really embed this as a skill, kind of positive and supportive behavior, that would mean that it starts to be incorporated into performance reviews. You know, you start to actually ensure that in upward feedback, you're getting indicators and you have measures and ways of picking up on signs of toxic behavior. Another aspect is trying to focus on the degree to which you are cultivating supportive, psychologically safe work environments, it isn't just about removing or preventing toxicity, but it's also about how much are you amplifying compassionate leadership, for example, or really cultivating a supportive environment.
1: And how can leadership send the message that they have begun to take these steps? How can they Communicate to their employees that they care about mental health and that they care about
0: their community's well being? Communication is a big one. I think one of the things that came out of our research is a feeling that leaders aren't listening to their people nearly enough. I think also taking action, not only celebrating um, successful examples of work environments and things that seem to be working, also clearly showing where there are actions that are taken to address toxic workplace behavior and making clear change. So then people feel safer and more comfortable raising issues in the future. I think that one way too is really trying to come up with time-bound measurable goals around some things. It can be pretty daunting. How are you going to prioritize employee, mental health, and well-being as an organization? The more that, that you can come up with discrete quick wins that you can start to demonstrate to your employees that that it matters, the better. Another of the issues
1: you mentioned in the report is inclusion, which is a topic that McKinsey has published a lot on. It can still feel elusive, I think, in many workplaces. What are some of the steps leaders can take to create a more inclusive environment for their employees?
0: I think that there's a a few different ways. One is through leadership and um, diversity at the highest level. So thinking about composition of board and of leaders and others, and by creating a safe space for any colleague to feel comfortable, then that is one step towards inclusion. Often what happens is if a company is defining inclusion too narrowly of, well, we have our diversity inclusion strategy, there's a specific officer that's going to be in charge of it, and it goes kind of here within the organization. But taking a broader approach, really thinking uh, across the whole workplace of what are certain setups, workflows other ways that teams might be set up that, that could have an impact on an opportunity to promote inclusiveness and really minimize conscious and unconscious bias.
1: Say a few words on the way coming forward about burnout and about other mental health issues in general can create concern about being stigmatized and what leaders
0: might do to mitigate that concern. I think the fact that around the world we're even having such a conversation on burnout is great the fact that mckinsey's doing a podcast on burnout is is great i think that there are all steps in the right direction that it shows that people are more comfortable acknowledging some of the real challenges that everybody faces and that it it is actually becoming more um, accepted and normal to realize that to be at your best and be effective as a leader it's critical that you have moments and periods of recovery and resilience to for an employer to acknowledge that they have accountability and responsibility in impacting whether or not their employees are feeling burned out that it isn't just about the number of hours that an employee works, but it's the broader culture, that takes courage. It's a big step because it's a big responsibility for an employer to be willing to then address it. So I think this is, is quite a big one, that without finding a way to even um, to begin the dialogue in a safe way, it's really hard to make change happen. And when we think about it, looking across the world globally, everybody knows somebody who has been affected by a mental health challenge, whether it's something that they're going through now or something that they had experienced in the past or they may experience over the next couple months. And being able to openly share experiences, especially at a leadership level, starts to make a difference. On the topic of stigma, one of the stats that always stands out to me is in a survey that we did last year of Um, a large number of of employees, over a third of them, 37% of employees with stated mental health challenge indicated that they would avoid treatment because they didn't want anyone in their workplace finding out about their condition. And so if we think about burnout as a kind of first step along a slippery slope towards broader mental health challenges by addressing stigma head on and really opening a dialogue around it, I think that, um, that, that we can make a very big difference.
1: Most leaders are super well-intentioned. They don't want employees to burn out. They certainly don't want most employees to leave. What's the best way for leaders to get a baseline on burnout in their organization? And then obviously vitally to understand whether they're actually making progress as they start to take some of these steps that you're describing
0: Measurement is critical. And I think that it's impossible to truly hold yourself accountable as a leader or as an organization if you aren't measuring. Measurement also brings responsibility with it. So if you're gonna conduct a baseline, then there's an expectation of your workforce that you're going to do something with the information and that change will happen. By not doing a baseline at all or not asking these questions to really understand the current state of your workforce, We know that burnout is getting worse. The more you find out now, it shows commitment early because you care and you're asking, and then it equips you with information and insights to actually be able to take the type of targeted interventions that have to happen. One of the things that we're doing as McKinsey Health Institute is we've launched a free open access survey for any employer to take around the world that does baseline kind of current state of employee mental health and well-being and gives some insights to start to target what interventions might make a difference. I think the along with the mandate of McKinsey Health Institute to ensure we're sharing everything back for the benefit and learnings of others, employers who take the survey are um, committing to sharing their data for broader learning and research in a sanitized database where we're starting to aggregate findings from employers around the world i think there are also you know there are a number of ways of getting a standardized measurement of burnout and then measuring that alongside other key performance metrics such as you know financial metrics safety quality employee turnover you could imagine a world in which this just becomes a standard uh, metric on an operational dashboard that uh, any employer is maintaining regardless of industry or sector or geography
1: last question in recent months we've entered a new period of economic volatility, inflation's high, recession is arguably imminent, leaders are facing among the most difficult operating environments that they have encountered in years. How optimistic are you that we'll be able to prioritize and resolve burnout in this changing and destabilizing climate?
0: if the war for talent is less critical and there are, Other budget constraints, I think that one thing that certainly could happen is that there's less of a need to be investing in employee mental health and well-being. And I think really emphasizing some of the well-documented evidence of the impact that employee mental health and well-being has on the long-term sustainability of an organization, not losing sight of that long-term goal that if any moment to double down on the mental health of your workforce, it's now, it will pay off in the long run. There is clear benefit to employers and only focusing on kind of the, the short term, which may lead to employers turning away from this, would certainly have negative impact in the long term. McKinsey Health Institute recently became a founding member of the World Well-being Movement. And a lot of the dialogue there is around how to redefine ESG with health kind of in the center of it. And also thinking about sustainability truly as the overall health and mental health and well-being of an organization. So I think the more that we can continue to strengthen the evidence base there and the incentives there, where regardless of the broader economic environment, showing that it does pay off for employers to be investing in the mental health of one's workforce. And I think that hopefully it will keep us on the right path. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity.
2: And now we'll hear from senior partner
1: Tiffany Burns, who shares how she convinced a client to not send an email the executive would surely regret.
2: I was on a project and it was the first time that I was stepping into the project manager role. So very, very new experience and it's a big role, right? Like you're the quarterback of the team and you need to be the one sort of guiding the team and integrating across all of the work that we're doing. And as I was getting to know my new client, she was a very, very great executive in an organization that was in the retail and consumer space that I often did work as an associate. She was having a bit of challenge with one of the other executives that was part of the project that she was working with in that context was super frustrated and felt like that that other colleague wasn't being collaborative and that they were really not on the same page. And I remember her having a pretty explosive conversation you know, in person with that other colleague and her reaching out to that colleague in response to that interaction to send an email. And we all know sending emails when you're upset or frustrated is probably not the right time to write a message. And so she had drafted the email very ferociously, you know, here's how I feel and what I perceived in this interaction what I don't think is right. And she called me into her office and said, I trust your judgment. Can you take a look at this email and give me thoughts? And I read the email and, you know, there was no way that I thought I could give any constructive criticism on the email that would get it to something that I thought made sense for her to send to a colleague. What I felt was this sending this email wasn't a good idea. And so in a bold movement, I xed out the email and I said, look, I don't think you should send this email. You know, I don't think this is probably the tone and the perspective you want to take given the issue. I really think that you need to go and have a conversation and really talk about why you found the interaction challenging and how you could do better moving forward. And I would say, wait a week or two before you do that. Now, this was a big moment for me, to tell my senior client something that's somewhat personal and to basically say the thing you're gonna do is a totally bad idea. But the good news is coming out of this interaction, my relationship with this client really, really went to the next level because she really appreciated the amount of care and concern and how important it was to me that she was responding the appropriate way and that I was willing to take a risk and to communicate that to her.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Raheli.
2: And I'm Roberta Fassaro.
1: Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review.
2: We'll see you in two weeks.